What is philosophy? Well, why should anyone care what philosophy is? For reasons I'll provide below, although all academic disciplines, as well as all people in their everyday lives, presuppose that language is meaningful and that what is expressed in language can be true, no academic discipline except philosophy can explain either the meaningfulness of language or how sentences can be true. So, anyone concerned with understanding how language can be meaningful and can express or fail to express truths should be concerned with what philosophy is. A helpful place to start may be with how I came to be a philosopher. As an undergraduate, I attended Tulane University, which did not please my father, who knew that I chose Tulane only because my girlfriend, a year ahead of me in school, was already there. But we've now been married for over 50 years, so I take my opting for Tulane to have been a good choice. A second reason it was a good choice was that it was not particularly challenging academically, so I was able to do a lot of reading on my own. I was close to completing the requirements for a psychology major, but then read, in the introduction to a psychology text I was reading on my own, that the book's author made the, what the author called the philosophical presupposition that everything that happens is determined, and hence that there is no free will. I was far more interested in investigating that presupposition than in seeing what might follow if one made it, so I turned to philosophy and never looked back toward psychology. I did deeply love literature, particularly novels, but when I wrote about those, I was always frustrated that what I wrote was so lame in comparison with what I was writing about. The situation was quite different in philosophy, where I at least thought I could often explain issues more clearly than the texts I was interpreting had done. Answering the question, what is philosophy, is made more complicated by the fact that the word philosophy is both the name of an academic discipline and a term used in ordinary English. As one example of its ordinary language use, former Penn State football coach Joe Paterno once said that his philosophy of recruiting was to select the best athletes he could find. The term philosophy used in this way is a kind of conversation stopper. Paterno wasn't opening a discussion. He was instead announcing that instead of recruiting players because of their adeptness at specific positions, he would select superior athletes and then train them to play needed positions. This usage is utterly irrelevant to the academic discipline. To clarify what philosophy as an academic discipline is, it is helpful to begin by noting two things. First, the term was coined in ancient Greece and appropriated into all European languages, but had no direct counterpart in any non-Western language until speakers of such languages encountered the term in European languages. Second, the highest academic degree in every theoretical academic discipline in the West is the PhD, the Doctor of Philosophy. Hence, there are doctors of philosophy in philosophy, but also in mathematics, history, and English literature, to name just a few. In non-theoretical disciplines, such as studio art, law, and medicine, the highest academic degree is not doctor of philosophy. It may also be illuminating to note that as late as the time of Isaac Newton, there was no science named physics. The title of his major work, translated from Latin into English, is Mathematical Principles of Nat Natural Philosophy. The explanation for this state of affairs, at least in the West, is relatively straightforward. In ancient Greece, every theoretical discipline was classified as philosophy. Plato even describes geometers as philosophers. The use of this term continued into the Middle Ages. This use of the term continued into the Middle Ages when universities first began to grant degrees of Doctor of Philosophy. The situation began to change in the 17th century when theoretical inquiries into specific subject matters began to explicitly distinguish themselves from philosophy. 
The substitution of the name physics for the name natural philosophy is an example. Some clarity is provided by the etymology of the term. Its roots are philo, which means love, and sophia, which means wisdom. This suggests appropriately that philosophers are lovers and hence seekers of wisdom. They are distinct from sophists, Greek thinkers who claimed to be wise. Returning to the 17th century, to establish itself as distinct from philosophy, every non-philosophical science had to limit its subject matter or, in a technical term, had to restrict its universe of discourse. Within the universe of discourse of physics are stars, planets, and, more recently, quantum mechanics, whereas rabbits fall into the subject matter not of physics, but instead of biology. If one wants to clarify what philosophy is at present, it is vital to see what options remain open to philosophy as non-philosophical sciences begin and continue to develop. The view that appears to be most widespread among professional philosophers in the West is articulated by A.C. Grayling in his Philosophy One: A Guide Through the Subject as follows. Quote, one can see philosophies having given birth in the 17th century to natural science, in the 18th century to psychology, and in the 19th to sociology and linguistics, while in the 20th century it has played a large part in the development of computer science, cognitive science, and research into artificial intelligence. No doubt this oversimplifies the role of philosophical reflection, but it does not much exaggerate it, because in effect philosophy consists in inquiry into anything not yet well enough understood to constitute a self-standing branch of knowledge. When the right questions and the right methods for answering them have been identified, the field of inquiry in question becomes an independent pursuit. End quote. Grayling is not alone. Indeed, the prominent analytic metaphysician Peter von Inwagen goes so far as to say, of the view expressed by Bailing, Grayling, that, quote, most people who have thought about the matter would take this to be one of the defining characteristics of philosophy, end quote. On this view, philosophy is presumably doomed to vanish from the scene once every restricted universe of discourse has been appropriated by a non-philosophical science. But there are at least three fatal problems with this view. First, to say that all restricted universes of discourse are either subject matters for non-philosophical sciences or, for now, continue to be subject matters for philosophy, is to say something about the unrestricted universe of discourse. To articulate their view, both Grayling and von Inwagen must thematize the unrestricted universe of discourse, but their understanding of philosophy does not allow them to do that. At the same time, however, the only theoretical discipline that can investigate the unrestricted universe of discourse is philosophy, because every non-philosophical science is individuated, at least in part, by its restricted subject matter. The other two problems with the grayling von Inwagen understanding of philosophy is that it is simply inaccurate with respect to what is currently included within the discipline. Currently, logic is a subdiscipline of philosophy, yet logic is certainly well enough understood to be pursued as an independent discipline or as a subdivision of mathematics. Another is that philosophy devotes an enormous amount of attention to its own history. It is not clear that we will ever have better resources for interpreting, say, the works of Plato or Aristotle or Descartes or Kant than we do now. As a result, the history of philosophy, like logic, would necessarily, if Grayling and von Inwagen were correct, qualify as subject matters for non-philosophical sciences. So, the understanding of philosophy held by Grayling and von Inwagen, and, if von Inwagen is correct, by most who have thought about the issue, is indefensible, because it requires, but does not allow, the thematization of the unrestricted universe of discourse, and because it is inaccurate in that it would exclude from philosophy both logic and the history of philosophy. To be sure, it does appear to accurately depict the status of such subdisciplines as ethics, metaphysics, and epistemology, 
and there are indeed philosophers who focus sometimes exclusively on these areas. But given that the unrestricted universe of discourse is an area of investigation that is open only to philosophy, that area must also be included in any adequate understanding of the field. Clarity is served by terming investigation of the unrestricted universe of discourse systematic philosophy. Moreover, systematic philosophers are found throughout the history of philosophy, beginning with Plato and Aristotle, and including the likes of Spinoza, Hegel, and Alfred North Whitehead. One additional aspect of the Grayling passage quoted above can now be fruitfully considered. Each non-philosophical science is, according to Grayling, a self-standing branch of knowledge. But what might be meant here by self-standing and what by knowledge? Presumably, a science is a branch of knowledge only if, one way or another, it presents linguistic accounts, theories, that are true, in some sense of true. But how is it that there can be linguistic accounts that are true? How is it that languages can articulate the subject matters of the relevant theories? And what is the appropriate sense of the word true? The non-philosophical sciences presuppose, generally explicitly, one or another answer to each of these questions, and to many more, but cannot raise these questions precisely because those questions cannot be raised within the, the restricted universes of discourse of those sciences. As a consequence, those sciences are not self-standing, at least in that they stand or depend on what they presuppose but cannot investigate. What they presuppose but cannot investigate can and must, however, be investigated by systematic philosophy. Put in terms used at the outset, the meaningfulness of language and the possibility of truth are two philosophical presuppositions relied on by all non-philosophical sciences and by many, non and by many subdisciplines within philosophy.